Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the September edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez. He has been the analyst for the Sinkfeld Cup broadcast, which ended yesterday, although we are recording this podcast just before round five on September 6th. Ramirez was inspired by the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer when he was just four years old. He became a FIDE master at the age of nine, an IM at 13, and a GM at 15. That achievement set Ramirez, who is from Costa Rica originally, as the first Central American to earn the elite title, and at the time, the second youngest GM in the world. He transferred to the U.S. Chess Federation in 2011 and is now the chess coach for the St. Louis University chess team. A competitor in three U.S. championships, Ramirez displayed some of his finest chess in May 2013 when he pushed reigning champion Gadikomsky to a playoff for the national title. He is also the 2010 U.S. Open champion. Ramirez studied video game design at the University of Texas at Dallas, earning a master's degree in arts and technology. I've had the pleasure of serving as Alejandro's editor both when I was Chess Life editor and when I was editor of the 2018 book, The Sinkfeld Cup, celebrating five years 2013 to 2017 as he wrote the chapter on the 2015 event. This interview opportunity is provided by the St. Louis Chess Club and the World Chess Hall of Fame, and I'm grateful for his time as he begins his broadcast duties almost immediately after this interview. Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez, welcome to the September edition of One Move at a Time. Oh, thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Great. But, you know, so this may not be big news by the time this airs, but as of right now, let's get rid of the elephant in the room, which are the events of yesterday, which when Magnus Carlsen withdrew from the Sinkfeld Cup. But I'm not asking you any specific questions about that. I'm more curious how you handled it as a broadcaster, because you learned about this while you were live on the air. How do you talk about the experience about thinking on your feet with a camera staring you in the face? Like I noted specifically that you pulled out your phone and looked up his tweet. Was that a, like a, did someone suggest that to you or did, did it just occur to you to, to handle it that way? So I'll be quite frank in the interview. Uh, we knew that this was a possibility slightly before the broadcast. So we were told that Magnus had decided not to show up, that it was confirmed 100%, of course, until his time ran out, that uh, there, were still, there was still some hope, let's put it that way, that Magnus would indeed um, show up to his game. But it was pretty last minute. We usually go into rehearsal about an hour before our broadcast starts. 
And we usually do that, you know, to test the microphones and to make sure that everybody's on the same page, know what we're going to talk about, uh, see what important matchups are. So, you know, everybody's more or less, uh, they're usually pretty, <laughs> pretty easygoing uh, rehearsals. But yesterday's was very, very tense because we didn't know exactly what we could say. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen. The new anti-cheating measures started. So there was a lot of things that we knew were happening, but we weren't so sure what we could present and how we could present it. So we wanted to not put words in people's mouth. And I think that's the hardest part of this kind of broadcasts because everybody has their own speculation, but as somebody that is trying to be objective and trying to present a tournament, you can't be speculating for other people. And even something like uh, Magnus saying that he won't show up, we can't say he won't show up until he actually doesn't. And those kind of little details are things that go through your mind while you're at it. Specifically, the tweet that you were referencing, uh, our director, Kevin Depew, uh, is talking to us, the broadcasters, Peter, Yasser, and me, consistently through our earpiece. So. Uh, at that moment, I had already known that Magnus wasn't showing up. Uh, this time had expired, but I didn't have like an official word from him. He hadn't given us anything official that we could use in the broadcast. So it was nice to have a tweet that I could read um, during it. The only problem was that I only got sent a screenshot of the tweet and I didn't realize that there was a video attached to it. Somebody had to tell me that during the break. Now, for uh, for me as a broadcaster, it was it was. It was tough and it was exciting at the same time. The reason is that as a player and as a participant, as a fan, I mean, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked that Magnus wouldn't show up to the game. I mean, the implications of this are pretty high. It's not like he got sick and then he had to withdraw. This has happened pretty often in the last couple of of years, but it was very clear that this was not health-related. And Magnus has never forfeited a game like this, so it's a very big statement. statement. What the statement is about we can't speculate. It's just a statement. And it's up to him to formulate his own words and, and say his reasoning. Clearly, the club and him are still in good terms. So, you know, whatever happens from now moving forward until the end of the tournament, it'll be very interesting. Um, I think the hardest part uh, for me is to balance looking at the remaining games, but still not, uh, <laughs> not ignoring the elephant in the room, which is... Uh, which could easily take over the broadcast, but we still want to give the spotlight to the players that are still there. And I haven't seen any news uh, about this yet. As as this is continuing, is is just one player just going to get a buy each round? Yeah, we're going to basically play like it's a nine-player round robin. Uh, All of Magnus Carlsen's results up to this point are annulled. Uh, Of course, they still count for feeder rating because the games were played, but they don't count for the tournament standings. So everybody gets a zero-point buy or they just get a free day. That's what we're calling it. Uh, so for example, today that we're recording this, uh, Ali Reza will, was supposed to play Magnus, so he just gets a free day. I'm, I'm also curious about your the prep that goes into what you do as an analyst. Uh, as, I, as I see you pulling facts and figures seemingly from thin air, I, I wonder if you prep for each round Almost as if you were a player yourself. Uh, no, we don't. I don't actually prep like that. I would, I like to think of it like my life is prepped for this. I just consistently look at chess. I'm consistently talking uh, about chess with my friends and uh, my uh, college students. So, for example, like when I go to a team meeting 
with my college students or analyze some chess with them. Like I immediately have all this new knowledge that I can talk about at some point later when I uh, work with chess with Fabi. Now I have a lot of things to talk about you know, regarding an opening or another. And since I'm doing broadcast pretty often, I also have the chance to be checking games. And that stays in my mind because I can recall things that I've uh, looked at the past. Honestly, the hardest part is that I've done so many broadcasts so far that sometimes I'm wondering you know, about a certain position. I'm like, I know I've seen this, but which of the 2000 Fabi Wesley games <laughs> was it that I saw this particular thing in? So we do prepare a little bit. As I said, we do have rehearsals. So we'll look up their head-to-head statistics online and we'll, we'll look up a couple of things online first before uh, we go on air. And during the broadcast, there's actually a lot of magic of television going on. If I need to look something up, I'll wait for Yasser and Peter to be full front on screen. You know, I'll take out my phone. I'll be like, boom, chessgames.com. Or like, I'll ask somebody to look up something for me. I'll be like, ah, that's the answer. Exactly what I'm looking for. So sometimes I have like an idea of what I want to say, or I have a general direction of this information. And it makes it easy for me to like Google it or chess base it in a couple of, in a minute or less, so that I have a firm understanding of exactly what happened. And you, you mentioned the director is in your ear throughout uh, the broadcast. Is there anybody else as well that maybe, you know, technical analysts behind the scenes that might be able to feed you information? Yes. Uh, since this is a St. Louis chess club uh, broadcast, I can speak specifically about these, but not every broadcast works like this. Everybody, every broadcast has their own team of people, but we have a very talented group of people that work off the scenes. We have our director, we have uh, graphics, uh, that's usually one or two people. We have sound. So everybody does that. And also we have a technical analyst at the, we call it the truck. The reason we call it the truck is because the control room is in an RV and uh, it, it makes it easy for them because they do other things that are not chess. And this control room is mobile, so it's it's nice for them. But at the truck, uh, usually we also have a grandmaster, and his task is sometimes to tell us some information, like for example, if there's something's a novelty, or if you know we're missing on something that's important, he can also talk to in our ear through the director on on what we should be looking at. But most of the time, he's actually helping uh, the people at the truck that are not chess players to see what what is interesting, where the camera should be focused, what the graphics should say, uh, review all of the information before it actually goes on air. So we do have one, and for the Sinkfield Cup and for most of the tournaments, here it's uh, Varujana Kobian. Well, let's take a giant step backwards and talk about how you started playing chess. Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> you know, somebody asked me uh, how long I've been playing chess, and then I had to I have to give this figure of, of 30 years, and I was like, wow, 30 is uh, a long time. Uh, I started playing when I was four. I learned in Costa Rica, as you mentioned, I was inspired by this movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, but it wasn't so much that I was inspired by the movie, but I watched it with my parents, and my dad just happened to have an old chess set. He dusted it off, and uh, he taught me how to play. Uh, to be fair, we didn't. We weren't so sure on all the rules. The passant was a little unclear, so we didn't play with passant for quite a while <laughs> until I discovered a chess tournament when I was seven. My mom saw an article in a newspaper in Costa Rica that I was announcing a chess tournament. We didn't know what a chess tournament was, so we went and checked it out. I more or less fell in love with the game and the world, and uh, I started learning on my own. There was very limited access to books in Costa Rica regarding chess, but the little that I got my hands on, I would <laughs> I would read as much as I could. I mean, you have to remember, this is still pre-internet. 
So all I had was the little knowledge that you could pull from the Costa Rican chess players, plus whatever books I got my hands on. And nobody really knew um, too much about it. Like, for example, when I was eight, I needed an opening against D4. And I mean, Costa Rica had some international masters, but it's not that I had any direction. So I just picked the prettiest book I looked. I looked at and the shiniest one was play the Banco Gambit. And that's why I play the Banco Gambit is no, no particular reason, except because it had the prettiest cover. Now you're, I'm guessing your father wasn't a rated player. If he was unfamiliar with Anpassant, um, how would you estimate his strength? Well, we've learned, certainly learned since, you know, <laughs> both of us, not, not just him. Um, my dad, when we started probably was not very strong. Uh, I still don't think that his strength is probably past, 12 or 1300, but uh, he was instrumental in my success. Uh, everything that is chess, but not moving the pieces or tactics or strategy is something that he helped me with. Actually, my entire family was instrumental to my success because he helped me when it came to psychology. It helped me when it came to analyzing opponents and to keep calm, to be able to do all of those things that a coach does in the game of chess that is not, you know, this is the Banco Gambit, play it like this, play it like that. There's a lot of things that people underestimate um, that are that is related to chess, but it's not exactly moving pieces. Whereas my mom was instrumental in finding me tournament sponsorships and all kinds of opportunities. When did your parents realize, oh, we have more than just a kid that's interested in playing chess. We have a talented chess player here. Uh, my, my parents always joked that I was a problem child uh, because it was difficult for them to find uh, find them challenge find challenges for me. Uh, you know, Costa Rica is still a small country, and it's not a country that's very used to having great talent. It's a very chill, you know, very laid back type of place. And I was the type of person that just needed information, needed challenges, was always looking for something to do. I actually skipped around. Uh, when I was in elementary school, trying to find better and better schools, something that would challenge me better until eventually I, we ended up moving to America uh, when I was nine. It was a very brief stint. Uh, my parents didn't acclimate so well to it and we ended up going back, but it was clear that my opportunities would eventually land uh, in this country. Uh, I To answer specifically your question, uh, I think they always knew I was going, uh, I had a love for chess. I mean, since that first tournament, but I started climbing uh, Costa Rican rankings pretty quickly. Um, by the time I was nine, I was the junior champion of the country, so under 20. Um, by the time I was 11 or 12, I had qualified to the zonal. When I was 12, I qualified to the subzonal tournament. And I think that's where my career really picked up. Like I was already, you know, a strong chess player. I was like 1900, 2000. And, when I was 12, um, I qualified for the subzonal tournament. That was a big deal. A lot of things happened that year. Um, one of them was that I stopped going to traditional school. I started becoming, I wouldn't exactly say homeschool because I didn't do a lot of uh, school work, but I did do a lot of other type of work. Like I was studying programming and I was studying, uh, <laughs> back then it was called Visual Basic. I don't even know if that program exists anymore. Um, and I dedicated a lot of time for chess because now I have I had the possibility to do so. And a big break came in that subzonal because I scored six out of nine points. And the six out of nine points, uh, because of FIDE rules, 
automatically awards you a FIDE title. And back then it was international master. Uh, even though I was nowhere near IM strength, uh, I got my 13, uh, at 13 hours on IM, but definitely about 2250 strength. And it took some time to uh, get to that strength, but we weren't so sure how good I was. I mean, it was impossible because I played, you know, tournaments in Costa Rica and in Central America. And, you know, I played online, but by, like then ICC was all the rage. But it was still not so easy to determine how good I was compared to everyone else. Was my rating inflated? Was my rating underrated? It was hard to sell. So when I was 14, uh, my mom uh, got some sponsorship, uh, found some sponsorship, and we were able to go to the Olympiad in Bled in 2002, uh, as well as the World Youth Championship in 2002. And I mean, by this point, my, my, parent, my dad and I had worked for quite a while. Um, I was obviously strong. I had already made a couple of headlines here and there, but I think in Bled was when everybody figured out who I was because uh, I got a, we got a very random pairing. I was playing the third board for Costa Rica and Costa Rica played Russia in the first round. And um, I was a 14-year-old kid and I was playing Alexander Morozevich. And uh, <laughs> he, he sacrificed in exchange. He was crushing me positionally and somehow I fought back. And I had made in four and I missed it in time trouble, but we ended up drawing the game. And I remember this crowd of people surrounding the top board of the Olympia. They had forgotten to put these barriers uh, uh, so that, you know, people don't crowd the first board. It's like a sea of people uh, looking at that game. And I think after that, it was just kind of over. Like it was, it was clear that I was going to be a chess player. Um, I was very lucky that. Uh, my mom was able to find a more permanent sponsorship for me in Costa Rica. There was a um, there was a company called GBM, it's a subsidiary of the IBM uh, in Costa Rica, and they we had a goal: we were going to make grandmaster in five years. I was going to make GM before I turned eighteen, um, and clearly, <laughs> clearly, I shattered that by a by a little bit. I became grandmaster at fifteen, and well. Uh, I guess that's that's that part of the story. <laughs> so you, you're, you, you said how your parents helped you with things like chess psychology. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, all of a sudden you're at the chess Olympiad and all of a sudden you've drawn a crowd. D- did that bother you at all? Or were you so focused in the game? Or uh, I have to admit that it it was a little unnerving because I remember playing Morozovic. And by the time Morozovic has a bad position, Gary sits next to him. And, you know, Gary starts, like, staring at me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's Gary Kasparov. <laughs> and I'm trying to play my game. I have, like, not that much time left. Uh, so it was definitely unnerving. But I think considering all everything, I handled it pretty well. Um, I, I don't think that... I think that chess is a very tough game. I think people underestimate, especially uh, people that have never played at a high competitive level how much chess can influence your thought process, your mind, your mood, your psychology. Um, People underestimate how much losing a game hurts and how a lot of people are driven slightly insane or maybe very insane uh, by our game because they devoted fully to it. And when they don't reach the goals that they've set up for themselves, it can be quite crushing. But thanks to the support that I always had, I never thought of, you know, I lost at the end of the world. And I was able to come back pretty quickly from them. Well, I've got a couple of questions on that score, but before I do, I've got to ask, 
Was Kasparov staring at you aggressively or more in a who is this kid kind of way? I don't think Gary has ever stared at someone nicely. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was very upset because he knew the implications of Morozovic not winning. Gary was actually not playing that round. I don't even know how he got into the tournament hall because you're supposed to have a badge uh, to get in. And he wasn't playing that particular round. But since back then, the Olympians weren't match points, they were board points. Um, since Russia didn't win 4-0, they only won three and a half. Russia got sent to board 31, <laughs> which meant that Gary was swarmed by fans the next round. So I knew, I think he knew what was coming. <laughs> so I'm curious, this, this always fascinates me as a, as a class player myself. I'm a class C level player. And the fact that you can be a grandmaster like yourself, but then we have this more informal title of super grandmaster, and that's who's playing you know, in the Sinkfeld Cup, and that's whose games you're analyzing. What is the difference between you and them? Is it, is it some level of chess knowledge? Like, do they see one ply more to the horizon, or is it some other intangible? I think uh, the short answer is everything. And the long answer is that chess is very unique to people. And the difference between a 2550 and another 2550 is actually huge. And people don't realize that. I, I didn't realize it for a very long time. But now that I coach at uh, St. Louis University, I've had the opportunity of meeting chess players that are basically similar strength. You know, you'll have, have a 2600 analyzed with another 2600. And it's like I, I set up a position and one will say, well, you know, Colors blue, red, and white, I indicate that I have to play bishop f7. And the other one will say, what? well, it's obviously bishop f7 is correct, but the reasoning is one, two, and three. And it's like they're talking in different languages and looking at different games, but they somehow got to the same move. And uh, it, people underestimate how differently people think when it comes to the game. Um, so when it comes to the difference in strength between myself and uh, a 2700, it greatly varies. Uh, for myself specifically, it'll be some things, but to answer it more generally, um, people don't make 2700 for different reasons. Some don't make 2700 because they lack the talent. Some because they lack the work. Some because they lack the opportunities. Some because life just took them in a different direction. Um, I think that for me specifically, it's the last one. And at some point, you've already given up some of your best years and you don't have the opportunities or the time or the interest really to train to get there. Whereas there are other people that you see that they've trained fully all the time and they're just not going to make 2700. Just It's not in their bones. Uh, at, at the end of the day, chess is pretty cruel in that sense. Uh, to make super GM, I mean, you, you, you were either born with it or you weren't. Um, I'm a little arrogant in that sense that I think I, I would have been able to make it had I stayed with chess, but that's a completely different story. Uh, to answer your question, uh, how, how it's relevant to the question is that I think that when I analyze with Fabi, Fabi just does everything I do, but better, faster, and stronger. Uh, but I still can get a, a couple of moves in that he will miss, or I can get a couple of ideas in that he thinks are interesting. And uh, But you still feel that everything that you're thinking, he's already thought it. And it's the exception that I can surprise him more than anything else. And it really, I think, shows mostly in Blitz. Like, in Blitz, I always feel I can outplay Fabi once in a while. 
but it doesn't guarantee that I'll win the game. Like he'll come back and he'll fight and he's resourceful and he just does tactics and everything better at some point. Oh, that that's a very interesting answer. Thanks for going into that depth. And, you know, speaking of Fabiano, you were his second at the 2018 world championship. What, what was involved in that? Is it, is it most of us on the outside looking in think it's almost all opening preparation, but it can't just be that. No, I mean, opening is like, when you're actually working, I think openings is mostly what you're looking at, but it's not about that. Um, actually, when Magnus announced that he wasn't going to defend the title, I wasn't shocked at all. Like, I think I think a lot of people were shocked. I was not. I was not shocked at all because even during the match and as soon as the match ended, it was so exhausting for all of us. I mean, let alone for Fabi, uh, that I just couldn't see how you did this every two years. Uh, our preparation involved months of training. Uh, of course, a lot of it was in front of a computer hitting the space bar. Uh, but it's much more than that. There's, uh, for those that aren't familiar, on chess base, you hit the space bar to, uh, uh, so that you just go through the engine stop line. So basically, it's space barring. <laughs> but it, it, it's a lot more than that, actually. Um, a, lot, a lot of work is preparing your player to do different things. I mean, there's so many training games, so many positions that we've tried out. We've forced them to defend so many different bad positions against us uh, just as part of his training regimen when it comes to chess. And outside of chess, we did a lot of physical work. Uh, we did a lot of mental work. We prepared against specifically Magnus. We did a lot of general work for his chess. And then, of course, when it comes down to openings, oh my God, it's endless. Like, absolutely endless. I, I did not understand how endless it was going to be. When, when I started, I mean, we started months and months before it, and we made a list of what needs to be done. And it was clear that we were not going to do like 50% of it. It was just, it, it was just impossible. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, doing this every two years, I just don't know how, I don't know how Magnus or anybody is supposed to do it. Uh, it it's just an endless and kind of thankless amount of work. I mean, we had a great time because honestly, I think that since you're spending so much time with these people, you have to like them because if you have a team that's really strong, but you don't like them, <laughs> you're stuck with them for four months. I mean, I'm talking about like 10 hours of chess a day, right? You got to break it somehow. You got to listen to music, talk about something else at some point. And if these are people that you don't mesh with, <laughs> it's kind of tough. So we had we had we were lucky that we have we had great team chemistry in the 2018 uh, match between all of us, but I mean doing that every two years, I just I just can't fathom it. So to that chemistry, do you guys uh, participate in the like his physical workouts as well, or is that something that Fabiano just did on his own? No, no, we definitely did uh, a lot of uh, physical work together. Uh, we we're more mostly we like sports. So we'd play tennis or we'd play soccer or we'd play whatever uh, in the afternoons. And uh, during this particular match, uh, thanks to Rusum Kasimjano, we all got into yoga. Hmm. So uh, we would do like, he would do yoga in the, in the mornings and then we'd have like a sports workout in the afternoons. I know there was some kind of uh, sports article somewhere that said that, you know, uh, chess players burn an insane amount of calories per, per game and that that's completely busted. Yeah, none of that is true. But there... There, there is definitely a physical aspect to the game. That one is absolutely true. And we wanted to get uh, Fabiano in the best shape that we could put him in. Uh, to be perfectly blunt, at some point, we were trying to fatten him up a little bit <laughs> because 
we knew that the world championship match would cost a lot of pounds, like physically, that he it's so stressful and so long that he would lose some weight. And we wanted him to still have some weight at the end of the event. Problem is that that guy's metabolism is amazing. <laughs> I mean, we would feed him ice cream and no weight, no weight change at all. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious uh, when you've been that deeply involved in someone's preparation and now you're an analyst and you're paid to speak and you've got Fabiano and Mag- Magnus playing in the same event, at, at least until yesterday, do you ever get concerned that you're going to let a secret out that you perhaps were saving for future years? Uh, well, by this point, a lot of the work, and actually not a lot, all of the work that we did for t- for 2018 is obsolete. Like, either has either been revealed or it's bad or we don't even remember it anymore. I mean, chess moves very quickly nowadays. So I'm not afraid of revealing anything at this point. But I do remember doing commentary for some of his games in 2018. And I do remember being very careful around some games that Fabiano played specifically. That I was like, mm, we have an idea here. Uh, let me try to somehow steer the conversation <laughs> somewhere else so that nobody tells me, oh, what's the best move here? It's like, oh, actually, the engine, you know, we analyzed this for 15 hours yesterday. <laughs> um, but luckily, I think we didn't make any mistakes, neither Christian or I, uh, in that regard. But sometimes you do have to be careful about that when you're both a broadcaster in a second. Right, right. Um, you've already mentioned uh, a little bit about your work with the St. Louis University team. Am, am I so first of all, congratulations, because you guys are currently the national champions, um, just won the President's Cup back in January. So, you know, a significant achievement. Am, am I correct that you are the first coach for the team that you helped set up St. Louis University? Yeah, I, I started this from the ground up. Uh, I was very lucky that uh, St. Uh, Louis Chess Club approached me with this opportunity. They approached me... I want to say late 2015, maybe it was 2016, something like that. Um, and I, ha- I had the great chance of starting this for myself. And this is something that really attracted me to the opportunity. I mean, besides the fact that living in St. Louis is a thing to do as a chess player right now. Um, I like that this was going to be mine. I started it from nothing. We didn't have a chess club at the university and no players. I had nothing laid out. And I had to go through the entire, you know, bureaucratic university process. I had to go around the world recruiting people, uh, telling them, no, no, this is not Webster. It's St. Louis University. It's a new thing. Uh, Trust me, it's going to be great. (laughs) And it took a long time for me to figure out a lot of things. Let me put it that way. It was a learning experience for me. I I, I cannot explain how much I've grown as a person uh, because of this job and because of my interactions with my students in so many different areas. And I'm very grateful for it. But yeah, I'm, I am the first and right now uh, only coach. We do have the assistant coach, VAR. VAR helps me uh, quite often, especially when I can't go on trips with them. VAR, let me just jump in, VAR, uh, Varuzan Akobian. Varuzan Akobian, yeah. Um, but I, we've had an immense amount of success. And this year in particular has been golden for us. In the last year, we've won the World Feeder Rapid. Uh, online. We won the Pan American Intercollegiate in January. We won the President's Cup only a couple of months ago. I mean, maybe it was like three or four months ago by this point. We became national champions for the first time, and we broke our streak of always being second. I mean, we had always been second for like forever, except when it came to Final Fours. We always bombed at Final Fours for one reason or another. 
And I was like, why? Why are we bombing at these tournaments over and over again? And I started listening more and more to the players. And somehow this, this, this confidence of uh, building a team. Um, let me rephrase that. It's not the confidence. It's this, this uh, magic of building a team. It, it's, it's weird because at some point I had a stronger team than the team that won the national championship. But the team that won the national championship is actually very close to each other. They like, they like each other like in, as, as people. And when I, when I see them on campus, they're always like, hanging out together. And it reminded me of the Chinese team that won in 2014 in Tromso, uh, the Olympia, that they were always hanging out together, even though they were not rating favorites. They kind of played for each other, and that gave them a, an extra strength. It reminds me of the Armenian team every time overperforming at Olympiads. So even though we were significantly weaker this year than we were last year, we just did much better. So what year did the team first compete? Our first um, our first tournament as a team, I believe, for the Pan American Intercollegiate Championships of 2016. Okay, so to go from nothing to national champions in six years, I have to guess that that exceeded your expectations. Um, I would say I'm a very ambitious guy. I was actually getting annoyed that we haven't won this so far. I mean, we had come so close for so long. Uh, we've been doing so great. I mean, my students individually have had incredible success. Uh, I've been twice with Benjamin Bach to World Cups. I've been with other players to so many different tournaments, including you know the highest level of chess. Uh, one of my students, Nicolas Teodoru, just got silver medal at the Olympiad, so uh, beating Levon Aronian uh, while doing so with the black pieces. So clearly, there was a lot of talent. Um, the thing is Webster was always stronger and when Webster wasn't stronger or they were underperforming, one of the other teams was overperforming. I know, you know, shout out to both Bartek Machea and Alex Onischuk who have won uh, either the Pan American or the uh, President's Cup while being strong underdogs. And there was obviously a lot of understanding there. So I I was getting annoyed that we haven't won the national championship and I had to fix a couple of things, um, before, before we got there. So for me, it wasn't a big surprise. I wanted to do it within the first four years, but I definitely wanted this championship really badly. And I'm very happy. It was like a huge sigh of relief that we finally got it this year. So when, when you've won the national championship, I guess your goal is just simply to repeat, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I'll be very honest that we have at least one or maybe two years of, let's call it reconstruction. One of the reasons that I was very happy with winning it this particular year is that we had two students that were on their sixth year that they started when the program started. Uh, both Darius Schwirtz and Jamil Jan Ali Marandi started with that team that played in the Pan Americans in 2016. And I was, I was very worried they were going to graduate without the title in their hands. They had come so close so many times. So for me, it was important to win this year and not next year. And that being that, having said that, I have had a lot of people graduate. <laughs> so I need to replace all of them and kind of start not exactly from scratch, but you know, a lot of the gears that won this national championship are moving on to other things in life. Since you mentioned a couple of six-year students, what are the college regulations for how long a particular player can compete? It's exactly six years. 
So you're allowed to do six years. And most people, what they do and what both of them did was a four-year undergraduate and a two-year master. So they both graduated with their master's degree from SLU. Uh, that's the regulations um, for title players. Of course, for players that are not titled, they can play as long as they want. So concurrently with the Sinkfeld Cup, the uh, Bobby Fischer exhibition just opened. Uh, I imagine you've had a chance to, to wander through it? Yeah, absolutely. I actually gave a ton of interviews from that room uh, only a few days ago. And it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, when we talk about Bobby, I mean, there's so, so many things to talk about, right? But it always surprises me how the World Chess Hall of Fame is able to find things I had never thought about. And a lot of like interesting magazine recordings or even like a flip book that Bobby used for his openings. And it's like, oh, look, this is like OG chess base. And <laughs> it's so cool from so many angles and the way that they presented it, you know, the, the forming of Bobby as a player, the match itself, the aftermaths, it's beautifully presented. And it, I, I can't explain it. You have to go there. You have to go to the World Chess Hall of Fame. You have to check out this exhibit and see for your own eyes why this match was so relevant to us. And let's be honest, I wouldn't be here if that match never happened. That's that's way, the way that my dad learned chess, mostly learned chess, let's put it that way, uh, was because of that match. And he, he had those newspaper articles and he had his own chess and would go through the games. And I'll add my two cents about that as well. My uh, It was very, I, I got to see the exhibit last week and it was very meaningful to me as as well. It's why I started as a, as a youngster. Uh, my father taught me because of Fisher's rise to the world championship. But my wife was with me and my wife has absolutely zero interest in the chess world. And she found it a compelling visit as well. So, and it was her first time at the World Chess Hall of Fame. So if you, if you have a, um, a family member, a friend who's never been involved in chess and you have a chance to show them the World Chess Hall of Fame, you, you may just bring them over to the dark side. Oh, yes. It's absolutely engaging. I love not just this exhibit, but all the exhibits they do. They have this magic to tie in chess with pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's some kind of loose association. No, it's like, wow, chess really did influence this. And, you know, this influenced chess. And, you know, for example, we had like this Keith, Keith Haring exhibit. And you know, what's Keith Haring have to do with chess? And then you like read all about it and you're like, wow, yeah, of course, of course it belongs here. So they, they're absolute magicians over there at the World Chess Hall of Fame. And I encourage anybody that's going through St. Louis, even if they're not chess players, to stop it, stop by because it is a wonderful uh, little museum. So, uh, you know, as, as we near the end here, the you've had a pretty extraordinary chess life for such a, a young man in your early 30s, uh, you know, international player, scholastic player, winning major events in the U.S. Uh, ultimately, what, is, what does chess mean to you? What has it meant to you? I mean, chess is my life. Um, I did take a gap to be a university student for six years. Um, that was the only moment in which chess wasn't exactly at the forefront. And I'm very happy that I did that. I think in many ways it adapted me socially to so many things because uh, people also underestimate how difficult the life of a chess player is when you're consistently traveling, when all your friends are nothing but uh, a bunch of texts on your screen because you don't get to see them very often. Um, It's tough. But uh, I'm also extremely grateful. I mean, chess has given me an incredible amount of opportunities. I've gotten to meet some wonderful people. And it's allowed me to do something that I love 
for a living. And I've been very, very lucky in the fact that I've worn many hats in the chess world. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a broadcaster. I love I love doing that. I love being in front of a camera and explaining chess moves. People always ask me, like, when do you get nervous? And I'm like, no, of course not. Like, this is, I get nervous when I can interview people because this is not natural for me. But explaining chess, it's like breathing for me. I don't have to, I don't get nervous. I just do it. I've also been able to, as we mentioned, work for Fabi. I mean, when I worked for Fabi for the World Championship match, it was like touching chess heaven. So I, I got very lucky that I was able to do so. And I still have a lot of projects and ideas that I, I want to do. I, I was just a U.S. women's coach in, in Chennai, India. And that was also an amazing experience, being able to work with this talented uh, women and be able to give my, my chess insights and see how they're evolving as chess players to be able to coach St. Louis University and have all these young people. And I'm saying, wow, there's so much talent and I can help them. And I can help them not just in chess, but whatever I can do, help them in life. I mean, it's also been a great opportunity. So I am very grateful to chess and to the chess world because chess has been my life, continues to be my life. And it's been a great place. So if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> if they want to reach me, actually, probably the easiest is by email. If you just Google me, I think uh, St. Louis University has it on the forefront. Uh, it's uh, GM Ramirez at singlistchessclub.org. But uh, people reach out to me, all kinds of things, ask all kinds of random questions. I try to answer as best as I can. <laughs> but uh, for example, this past couple of days, oh man, my phone has blown up <laughs> with like all of this drama at the Singfield Cup. I mean, my, my phone is just like, bzz, 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 bzz. it never stops. But I, I, love, I love hearing from fans. I, love, I try to reply as often as I can. So if you're out there and I haven't replied, it's not personal. I just, I try my best. And if people want to uh, find out more about the Bobby Fischer 1972 exhibit, that you can find that at the World Chess Hall of Fame website, which is worldchesshof.org. And also the book that I mentioned at the beginning that both Alejandro and I worked on, the Sinkfield Cup, celebrating the first five years of the event, you can find that at the Q Boutique website, which is also can, um, you can find through the World Chess Hall of Fame website. So, Alejandro Ramirez, thank you so much for taking time out from your broadcast duties to join us on this September edition of One Move at a Time. No, oh, thank you. This was great. I mean, I love talking about chess, and it's 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 fun going through memory lane once in a while, you know. Yes, good. <laughs> good. I'm glad you had fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. <laughs>